Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the episode for June 8th through 14th, Alma 8 through 12, Jesus Christ Will Come to Redeem His People. And this week we're talking about Alma the Younger and Amulek and all kinds of good stuff. Um, I want to start out with the introduction from Come Follow Me. And it says, God's work will not fail, period. And that's something I think that it helps me to keep in mind when I'm struggling with something or when I'm going through something really hard, God's work will not fail. Like he will be victorious. Whatever it is that I'm going through, he's going to work through it with me. And I think that that is a lesson that Alma learns this week. We're going to talk about that. Continuing on with the introduction, it says, but our efforts to help with his work sometimes seem to fail. At least we may not immediately see the outcomes we hope for. At times, we might feel a little like Alma when he preached the gospel in Ammonihah, rejected, spit on, and cast out. Yet when an angel instructed him to go back and try again, Alma courageously returned speedily, and God prepared the way before him. Not only did he provide Alma food to eat and a place to stay, but he also prepared Amulek, who became a fellow laborer, a fierce defender of the gospel, and a faithful friend. When we face setbacks and disappointments as we serve in the Lord's kingdom, we can remember how God supported and led Alma, and we can trust that God will support and lead us too, even in difficult circumstances. And that is so true, and that's probably my favorite message from this week's Come Follow Me reading. Um, And we're going to talk about, there's other really good stuff in there too, but that was, I think, the message that came home is that even when it's hard, the Lord makes a way. Because he's interested in what we're going through. He's interested in our trials. He's interested in us and how we can make that path better for us and the things that we can learn from our trials. I'm going to talk about a trial coming up that I really learned something from. So, yeah, I think trials are good and the Lord will help us find a way through them. Um, One of the things that I thought this week as I was going through and preparing for this lesson is that I felt like the come follow me questions were like not my favorite. I really felt like I got more when I went through and kind of read like verse by by verse in the scriptures. So we're going to kind of just go through the scriptures and kind of talk about some of my thoughts as we hit on individual scriptures instead of following the come follow me format. Um, I do that sometimes with these episodes, so I hope that's okay with you guys. So we're going to start in Alma 8. And it says, And now it came to pass that Alma returned from the land of Gideon, after having taught the people of Gideon many things which cannot be written, having established the order of his church according as he had done before in the land of Zarahemla. Okay, so pause. So here's what we've got. We've got Alma, who has been successful in Zarahemla and in Gideon, different situations in both of those cities. Zarahemla, I remember he had to kind of call to repentance a little bit. And then Gideon, they were already doing good. And so he gave them a little bit more about the Savior. And we learned really cool stuff about the atonement that we wouldn't have learned in Zarahemla. 
So it's interesting to me, though, we also talked about this last episode, the different tactics that he took with each one of these cities, right? So he goes to these two cities, Zarahemla and Gideon, and then it says in verse 1 that he returned to his own house at Zarahemla to rest himself from the labors which he had performed. I think that there's a message in there, too, that there's a time to work, but the Lord also realizes that there's a time that we need rest, and there's time to step back from our labors and take a deep breath and be like, whew, okay. And then pick up again and keep going, which is what Alma does. Okay, and let's see, let's go to three. And it came to pass in the commencement of the 10th year of the reign of judges over the people of Nephi, that Alma departed from thence and took his journey over into the land of Melech, on the west of the river Sidon, on the west by the borders of the wilderness. And he began to teach the people in the land of Melech according to the holy order of God, by which he had been called. And he began to teach the people throughout all the land of Melech. And it came to pass that the people came to him throughout all the borders of the land, which was by the wilderness side, and they were baptized throughout all the land. All right, so let's pause there. Boop. I think it's important that we take a look at this. Melech, he had success in Melech. And that's something that I have always skipped over before because of what's going to happen in Ammonihah and how we're going to go into that for like the next several chapters. And there's going to be mucho drama. Like I forget this part about Melech. So he's had three successful cities. And it sounds like maybe he took three different tactics in each one of these cities. And now he's going to hit up against something that's a little bit harder for him. But We focus so much on the hard thing that we forget that, hey, there were successes there too. So I think it's important to take a moment and celebrate the successes that we have in our own lives through our Heavenly Father's help and remember those successes when we do come up against something really hard. All right, continuing on, let's go to verse 7. And this is not particularly like a gospel thought or anything like that. This is just like an interesting cultural note. But it says, Now it was the custom of the people of Nephi to call their lands and their cities and their villages, yea, even all their small villages, after the name of him who had first possessed them. And thus it was the land of Ammonihah. So I just thought that was kind of a cool little cultural thing that, you know, they called it after the person who had first possessed them. So Zarahemla was the first person in Zarahemla, I guess. And, you know, Melech was the first person in Melech. And Ammonihah was called after Ammonihah. So good to know. Okay, going on into... Eight. And it says, It came to pass when Alma had come to the city of Ammonihah, he began to preach the word of God unto them. Now Satan had gotten great hold upon the hearts of the people of the city of Ammonihah, therefore they would not hearken unto the words of Alma. Nevertheless, Alma labored much in the spirit, wrestling with God in mighty prayer. Okay, pause there. So I love it when the scriptures talk about wrestling with God in prayer. Um, That is just such a powerful image for me, um, or imagery, I guess, for me, that wrestling with God in prayer. And it makes me think, like, when I'm asking God for something, how bad do I want it? Am I wrestling with Him in prayer? Or is it just like, uh, please bless this food, keep us strong and healthy? Or is it, you know, something like I'm passionate about? You know, and what a difference it makes when we do have that passion behind something where we're wrestling with God over something. It makes me think of like the requests that I make to my Heavenly Father on a daily basis, like, how much do I mean them? Is this just like a coverall type thing? Or is this like, do I really mean this deep down in my soul that I'm actually, you know, wrestling with God over it. I don't know. I just really love that phrase. Okay, continuing on. 
that he would pour out his spirit upon the people who were in the city, and that he would also grant that he might baptize them unto repentance. And sometimes I think this is called the missionary scripture, right? Or the missionary's prayer that he might be able to baptize them unto, rep- unto repentance. Um, and I love that he's so tender and he's so concerned about this before he even ever meets the people. So you can tell he's already developing a love for these people. And that's, I think, a huge important part of serving in the church is developing a love for those that you serve. And it's interesting to me that in this case, and, you know, I've seen it also in callings that I've held before, too. Before you even ever get to know the people, you love them and you care about them and you care about their welfare spiritually and physically and what's going on with them. And I think that that's what was happening to Alma, which is why he was so passionate and wrestling with the Lord, you know, in his prayer before he goes to Ammonihah. In 11, it says, Nevertheless, they hardened their hearts, saying unto him, Behold, we know thou art Alma, and we know that thou art the high priest over the church which thou hast established in many parts of the land according to your tradition. And we are not of thy church, and we do not believe in such foolish traditions. Okay, so they are like digging at Alma, like we know about your church and it's ridiculous. I mean, that's kind of like the sarcastic like response that they have to him. And in 12, it says, And now we know that, that because we are not of thy church, we know that thou hast no power over us. And thou hast delivered up the judgment seat unto Nephiha. Therefore, thou art not the chief judge over us. You're not our president. We do what we want. It's a free country. I can do what I want, right? That's kind of what they're saying there. 13. Now, and the people had said this and withstood all his words. They reviled, which means like they made fun of him, and spit upon him and caused that he should be cast out of their city. And he departed thence and took his journey towards the city, which was called Aaron. Okay, so obviously, little disheartening, right? Um, you go in, you care about these people, you've wrestled with God over these people, you really want this to work out, you've had success before, you have reason to believe that you will have success again, and you walk into the city and all of a sudden, they're spitting at you, they're being sarcastic and rude to you, and you're like, oh, I mean, my, I think my heart would break that not only were they being rude to me when I loved them already so much, but also that they would be rude to the message that I was trying to bring to them about their Savior and what what he could do for them. All right. Then in 14, it says, And it came to pass that while he was journeying, journeying thither, going to the land of Aaron, being weighed down with sorrow, wading through much tribulation and anguish of soul because of the wickedness of the people who are in the city of Ammonihah. All right. I want to pause there. So he is in this really rough place. Um, obviously. I think his heart's breaking a little bit. Um, I think he's really frustrated. And this story kind of reminds me of something that actually happened last week. Um, I'm in the middle of like home DIY projects, like left and left and right. You know, we've got all this time on our hands. So, you know, why not do the kitchen backsplash and tile the floors and like all this stuff? So one of the DIY projects that I've undertaken recently was to change out my kitchen faucet. And now the kitchen faucet that I changed out, I think was original. It probably came with the house, which means it was probably 30 plus years old and had been in our sink for 30 plus years and had all kinds of like calcified, like nastiness in it, right? And so it was time for it to be removed and a new faucet needed to go in. Well, I am a tough, strong, independent woman. So I decided that I was going to do this myself. I was going to learn all kinds of plumbing skills and I was going to take this on. 
Also, the internet said that this was a very easy DIY. The internet lies. I just want you to know that. When you're dealing with 30-year-old sinks, it's a, it's a lie. So I learned things. I learned how to turn off the main like water line to my house. I learned which lines underneath the sink turn the water on and off to the different like little lines and things like that. But the most important thing I learned was about lock nuts. Lock nuts are these things that go up underneath the sink that hold the various handles to your faucet on, and they are like these little black round flat discs that have kind of like these little fins that you use to turn them, and then the screw that comes down from your handle goes through the sink, and this lock nut comes up from the bottom of the sink, and it turns and it tightens that little handle in place. And so I had three lock nuts underneath the sink that I needed to remove so I could take the old faucet out and put in the new faucet and then tighten those lock nuts up. Well, I started up with the lock nut with the sprayer. And it was a little tight. I mean, it was a little tough, but, you know, I I gave it a little elbow grease and, you know, really tugged on a little bit and it came off. And I was like, yes, I thought this was going to be really hard, but I was really successful in getting this lock nut off. Like, this is awesome. So I go to the hot water handle lock nut and it did not come off as easily as the sprayer lock nut did. And in fact, like I got started getting really frustrated with it and I'm pulling on it and pulling on it. It's not working. And so, you know, I start praying. Heavenly Father, I'm trying to learn a new skill. Like I'm trying to learn something new. Will you please help show me how I need to remove this lock nut? And, you know, I go to the internet, I'm Googling like how to remove kitchen sink lock nuts, you know, things like that. There's a couple different tips on there. Spray on WD-40, heat it up with a blow dryer, you know, knock it with a hammer. And so I did a couple of those things. Um, I let the WD-40 soak into it a little bit and, you know, it took about an hour or so of me pulling and tugging, but I finally got that lock nut off. So I see the sprayer lock nut kind of like the people of Gideon or Melek, right? Where Alma had to put in the work and he had to twist it, but it came off eventually, right? Whereas I see the hot water lock nut as kind of like the people of maybe Zarahemla, where they took a little bit more elbow grease and he had to use like a little bit more, like more different. I know that's horrible English. He had to use different teaching tools to kind of get that lock nut off. But eventually through the struggle, he was able to be successful. Well, now there was this final lock nut, the cold water handle lock nut. And this was my Ammonihah. <laughs> like, this lock nut was awful. I tried everything. I did the hot water, like, or the blow dryer heating up the plastic to get it to loosen up. WD-40 soaked on it forever. Like, I'm taking pliers in there and, like, pulling as hard as I can. So hard that I'm ripping off, like, the little fins that are supposed to be helping you to turn it. Like, nothing was working. And at this point, I'm, like, laying on my back underneath the sink, like, bawling my eyes out. Like, Heavenly Father, why won't you help me? Why won't you help me, Heavenly Father? I can't get this done. I can't do this on my own. And now I'm stuck here underneath the sink and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I've scraped, scraped my hand open. I'm bleeding. There's literal blood, sweat, and tears underneath my sink at this point. And my husband's at work and I don't want to call him to come home because I'm a strong, independent woman and I can do this myself. I know I can, um, with the help of my heavenly father, at least. And so I'm sitting there praying and I'm like, I just don't know what to do. And so 
I'm like, well, maybe I should go look at the internet again. And I was like, but it already told me what to do. It said to spray WD-40 on there and it said to use the blow dryer and that's not working. And then I had the thought in my head, I have to think it's from my Heavenly Father because this is not something I think that would normally occur to me. But it was the thought was, hey, you strong, independent woman, why don't you go look up on the internet and find another strong, independent woman telling you how to remove these things? And I was like, okay, well, I will do that. And so I go and I look up on YouTube how to remove lock nuts. I look specifically for a woman, you know, doing a video. And the video I found, like, she had this whole PVC pipe thing that she was cutting and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not cutting PVC pipe. I'm not doing that. But then it gets to the end of the video. And she mentions, hey, there's another alternative. If your lock nut is stuck, one of the things, the tools that you can use is take a screwdriver and put it in the little fins and then use a hammer and tap the hammer until the lock nut loosens up. I was like, okay, I can do that. I have those tools. And so I'm back underneath the sink and I'm like praying with all I'm worth, like, Heavenly Father, please let this work. Please let this work. And so I get the screwdriver up there and I tap it. And once you know, like, boom it came off. The lock neck finally came off and I just had to have the right tools. And oh, like there was so much mineral grossness deposit that had sealed it on there. And that's why it took so much. So to me, it was like the hardening of the hearts and the people of Ammonihah that Alma couldn't just go in and do it by himself. He had to have somebody else to help him. And we're going to meet that somebody in just a minute. Um, when he goes back into to Ammonihah, he's going to meet somebody, that screwdriver and hammer to kind of loosen some of these hearts in Ammonihah. The Lord prepares a way and the Lord instructs us in the ways to solve our problems. And that's kind of what I saw in the parable of the lock nuts <laughs> that I just told you about. Um, it's just kind of how I saw it this week as I was sitting underneath my kitchen sink crying. I was thinking about Alma. So that, that's what I was thinking about. But going back to the scriptures now, um, again, it came to pass that while he was journeying, being weighed down with sorrow, waiting through much tribulation and anguish of soul because of the wickedness of the people who were in the city of Ammonihah. And it came to pass while Alma was thus weighed down with sorrow, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying, Blessed art thou, Alma. Therefore, lift up thy head and rejoice, for thou hast great cause to rejoice, for thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God from the time which thou receivest thy first message from him. And behold, I am he that delivered it unto you. Okay, pause there. So again, this is something I see in priesthood blessings. It's something I saw in the revelation that came to Alma the elder that we talked about a couple episodes ago. One of the favorite things it seems like the Lord loves to do when he talks to his children is the first thing he tells them is how much he loves them. And so in this particular case, the the angel's very first message to Alma is, blessed art thou. You are blessed, Alma. Your heavenly father knows you. He knows what you need. He knows of your successes. Let's remember those successes. Don't get weighed down with this, you know, yuck that you're in the middle of. You have great cause to rejoice. You've been faithful in keeping the commandments of God from the time which you first received this message. And behold, I'm the one that delivered it to you. How cool is that? That that angel got to come back and see Alma in this stage of his life. For now, you know, Alma was once a knothead and had to get bopped on the head. But now the same angel got gets to come back and see Alma dealing with other knotheads. You know, I just think that's a really cool thing. 
By the way, P.S., I know the angels that always appear, I think they're probably male, but I would really love to be an angel like that that gets to appear to people because I think that's really fun. Probably not in my future, but I just, I think that would be really fun. Okay, continuing on. In 16, this is the angel still talking. And pay attention to the punctuation and grammar in the sentence because there's a message in there, okay? So it says, And behold, comma, I am sent to command thee that thou return to the city of Ammonihah, comma, and preach again unto the people of the city, semicolon. So he paused there. So in this particular instance, I imagine Alma's face being like, what? Preach again to the people of the city? Because the angel then continues on, yay, preach unto them. Yay, say unto them, except they repent, the Lord God will destroy them. So the angel has to say, yes, them, the ones that just spit on you and called you out and like said all kinds of nasty stuff to you, go back to them. Yes, them. Yes. You know, and he had to say that twice. So Alma might have been a little like, what? So I love that little human moment that Alma probably had. And the angel continues on and says, for behold, they do study at this time that they might destroy the liberty of thy people, which is contrary to the statutes, judgments, and commandments, which he hath given unto his people. Okay, so interesting that Alma walks in, and the first thing they start telling him is, we know who you are, we know your authority, and we know that we are not underneath your authority. Okay, well, so they obviously are very familiar with the laws of the area. That would tend to make you think, yeah, they've been studying up on the laws because now they're trying to undermine them, and they're trying to weaken the liberty and freedom that the people are currently enjoying. All right, so at this point, I would have to think that Alma probably has some mixed emotions. In the next verse, we see that he speedily returned to the land of Ammonihah. However, I mean, there must have been some emotions going on in his mind. One of the things that I think sometimes when we are faced with something so daunting and so challenging that gives me hope and helps push me forward is the knowledge that my Heavenly Father already knows how it's going to play out. And in this situation, Heavenly Father gives Alma this particular little nugget that, hey, they're already studying that they might destroy the liberty of this people. Like, I already know what's going on in their minds, Alma. You know, this is just a reminder to let you know, I've got this. Like, I know what's happening. And you're going to go in there and we're going to do some good together. There was a song that I heard this week that kind of reminds me of this point, this kind of turning point for Alma. And I want you guys to hear it. It's called You Already Know by J.J. Heller. And it's kind of like that same idea of, I'm in the spot, it's really hard, I don't know what to do, but you already know. And you know how it's going to turn out. And so, this is what I want you guys to hear in this song, You Already Know by J.J. Heller. Uncertain, and my weary heart can't take much more surprise. I wish there was a point on the horizon, something I could see with my own eyes. I need to tell you that I'm scared, I feel completely unprepared, and nothing's what it two weeks ago but you already 
can't seem to find the easy answers. Someday I hope the suffering makes sense. I just need to know that you are with me, even if you keep me in suspense. We talk so much these days because I have so much to say. You stay and listen to me closely, even though. so beautiful. I love the, just the encouragement that it gives me that my heavenly father already knows. He knows what's coming and he'll be there with me through it. And he was there with Alma through everything that Alma went through. Um, next, Al- Alma is going to go in and he's going to meet Amulek. And this is just to me and probably to Alma. It's just another way to show that heavenly father is aware of Alma and aware of what he needs and the tools that he needs to kind of Loosen this lock nut that is Ammonihah because Amulek comes in as the screwdriver and hammer in my little, you know, metaphor there to kind of loosen up this lock nut. Alma needs an inside man to get in. It sounds like this city was very much, um, I guess, based on kind of social class and social status and who's got power and who doesn't. I mean, they're very much like kind of obsessed with that thing, I think. And so having someone like Amulek who was an important guy in the culture. We see Amulek say this about himself in Alma 10. He says, and this is Alma 10 verse 4, and behold, I am also a man of no small reputation among all those who know me. Yea, and behold, I have many kindred and friends, and I've also acquired much riches by the hand of my industry. So we know that he is someone who's important there in Ammonihah. And so having him kind of get Alma's back is a way for Alma to get into that society. And the Lord knew that Alma needed that extra tool, and he gave it to him. I think that's so beautiful. All right, so we're going to fast forward through the Alma and Amulek thing, because I've taken up half the episode, and Alma has just barely walked into Ammonihah. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. 
All right, so we're at the end of chapter 8, and it says 27. And Alma tarried many days with Amulek before he began to preach unto the people. So Alma and Amulek didn't just, like, join forces, like, Batman and Robin and take off into Ammonihah. They hung out a little bit. They got to know each other. And I think that's important, especially when you're team teaching with someone. You need to know the strengths and weaknesses of your team teacher so that when they start, you know, you get to a point where maybe there's a question that you are a little bit weak on. The team teacher can kind of reach in and use their strengths in that. Or if there's a different way to teach that you're really strong in and the team teacher's a little bit weak in, you know, you can play off of each other. And when you've got that chemistry with another team teacher, it makes the lesson go a whole lot smoother. And so I think that at this point, what they're doing is they're bonding and creating that kind of team co-teaching team. And so they're going to be able to really rely upon each other when they go into Ammonihah. But while they're building this team together, this dynamic duo that they are creating, in 28 it says, And it came to pass that the people of Ammonihah did wax more gross in their iniquities. Oh, they were gross. Oh. And 29, And the word came to Alma saying, Go. And also say unto my servant Amulek, Go. Forth and prophesy unto this people, saying, Repent ye, for thus saith the Lord, Except ye repent, I will visit this people in my anger. Yea, and I will not turn my fierce anger away. Sometimes I think when we're on that precipice of like, Oh, this is going to be really hard. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. The word from the Lord is go. Just do it. Take that step, whatever it is, to do that really hard thing. Just worry about the next step. Then after that, take another And then after that, take another. Don't worry about the horizon and what's going to happen, you know, five days from now, 10 days from now, two months from now. Take the next step. For all of us who are in like the education industry, for all of us who have kids who are going to be going to school in the fall, we're all looking at the fall with some kind of trepidation. Um, I had lunch today with a friend who is a pre-K teacher, and she's like, I may not even have a job in the fall. I don't even know. We're at the point where we can't predict the situation with the virus is so constantly evolving and changing. We can't predict where we're going to be in two months when school is supposed to resume. So at this point, my thoughts with my heavenly father are go, just prepare, just be prepared for anything and just go worry about today. Go get what you need to get done at your library and just keep going. And so sometimes I think when we're in situations that are hard, just go. And that's what heavenly father tells them to do in verse 28 or verse 29, where he says, go. Okay. 30. And Alma went forth and also Amulek among the people to declare the words of God unto them. And they were filled with the Holy ghost. And 31, and they had power given unto them, insomuch that they could not be confined in dungeons, neither was it possible that any man could slay them. Nevertheless, they did not exercise their power until they had been bound in bands and cast into prison. Now this was done that the Lord might show forth his power in them. Interesting to me that they did not exercise this power until they were bound and cast into prison. So they had this power from the Holy Ghost, but they didn't use it until it was absolutely necessary. So sometimes I think the Lord lets us go through like some hard stuff before he gives us the tools that we need to release ourselves from that hard situation. In this case, I think, you know, and Mormon specifically is telling us, now this was done that the Lord might show forth his power in them. Would it have been as powerful if like they started zapping people and breaking bands as soon as like they had been tied up or whatever? No, I think that they were bound in bands. They were cast into prison. Everybody knew that they were in prison. And then all of a sudden, 
they're breaking their bands and they're busting out of prison. Like that's so much more powerful, I think, than just it happening, happening instantaneously. So to me, that was kind of interesting. All right, let's dive into Alma 9 now. And the beginning of chapter 9, we see the people getting kind of caught up in one of their laws. Like they're very much into their laws and finding like loopholes to get through their laws and things like that. And this particular law was apparently the testimony of two witnesses. Like our law requires there be two witnesses. Verse 2, it says, Who art thou? Suppose ye that we shall believe the testimony of one man, although he should preach unto us that the earth should pass away? And they continue this in verse 6, saying, Who is God that sendeth no more authority than one man among this people to declare unto them the truth of such great and marvelous things? Now, I don't think the great and marvelous things was said with, like, sincerity. sincerity. It was said with sarcasm, I believe. Such great and marvelous things, right? And they stood forth to lay their hands on me. And, of course, again, just to note that the narrator has changed. We've gone from third person, which was in chapter eight now, to in chapter nine, we are first person point of view, just FYI. All right, but behold, they did not. And I stood with boldness to declare unto them, I did boldly testify unto them, saying, behold, O ye wicked and perverse generation, how have ye forgotten the tradition of your ancestors, your fathers? Yea, how soon ye have forgotten the commandments of God. Do you not remember that our father Lehi was brought out of Jerusalem by the hand of God? Do you not remember that they were all led by him through the wilderness? And have ye forgotten so soon how many times he delivered our fathers out of the hands of their enemies and preserved them from being destroyed even by the hands of their own brethren? Okay, pause. So one of the things that he's fussing at them about, which is interesting to me, is not necessarily even that they're breaking all the commandments, which they are. They're, you know, making really poor choices, but it's that they've forgotten. They don't remember the greatness of God and what he has done for them. They don't hold that in their hearts. They've lost that remembrance of God in their hearts. Do you not remember? Do you not remember? Have you forgotten? How soon you have forgotten is the thing that he says over and over again. Do you not remember in 13? Now I would that you would remember in 14 over and over again. That's what he keeps saying to them is remember, remember, remember. You're not remembering. I need you to remember. And that's what the Lord says to us every week when we take the sacrament. Remember him that we will always remember him. That's what the Lord wants. He wants us to remember him because when we remember him and we remember his goodness and his mercy towards us, that changes behavior more than understanding any amount of commandments does. You know, we see that with the Pharisees back in ancient Israel. They knew the law inside and out, but they didn't remember the goodness and the mercy of their God. And when you remember your God, that's when your behavior changes and you take steps to become closer unto him and you want to keep remembering him. Next, we learn something that's kind of interesting, that we're judged according to the light and knowledge that we have. And in 15, Alma is telling them, it shall be more tolerable for them, which is the Lamanites, in the day of judgment than for you, if you remain in your sins. Okay, pause. So now this must have been a huge slap in the face, um, because to these Ammonihaites, Ammonihaites, I don't, I don't know what you would call the people that live there, but to the, you know, people who lived in the land of Ammonihah, the Lamanites were probably like the heathens who lived out 
you know, on the edge of society. They were the wild and crazy ones. They were the ones that they looked down on. And for Alma to stand up and say, hey, it's going to be better for them than it is for you guys because you know better and you've chosen to forget. You are judged according to the light that you have. It's just interesting to me. And also it continues on to a really comforting doctrine that I really love. And this is in 17. It says, and at some period of time, we, they will be brought to believe in his word and to know of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers. And many of them will be saved for the Lord will be merciful unto all who call on his name. It's that to me is so comforting because it shows us that our heavenly father loves all of his children, not just the ones who are lucky enough to encounter Christ in their lifetimes. That Everyone, even if you are born in India and you live and you grow and you die without even ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ, you still at some point will have the chance to get to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also comforting to me to know that even as far gone as the people in Ammonihah were, as wicked as they were, the Lord still loved them. And he loved them enough to send an Alma, an Amulek, and an angel to kind of prod Alma to go in that direction. As wicked as they were, the Lord still loved them and he still wanted them back. For those of us who have family members that we love, that have made wrong choices and have gone astray or left the church or, you know, gone back to addiction, whatever it is that they're into, the Lord still loves them. And he still wants them back. And he will go to miraculous lengths, such as the angel appearing to Alma and prodding him towards Ammonihah, to get them back. Our Lord loves us. He reaches out to us. Whether we've never heard of him or whether we have heard of him and we've turned away, he still is constantly reaching out to us, trying to bring us to him, which is why it's so important for us to remember him. In 18, Alma says, And behold, I say unto you, if you persist in your wickedness, that your day shall not be prolonged in the land, for the Lamanites shall be sent upon you. And if you repent not, they shall come in a time when you know not, and ye shall be visited with utter destruction. Skipping ahead a little into 19, it says, He would rather suffer that the Lamanites might destroy all his people who are called the people of Nephi, if it were possible that they would fall into sins and transgressions. After having had so much light and so much knowledge given unto them of the Lord their God. Yea, after having been such a highly favored people of the Lord. Yea, after having been favored above every other nation, kindred, tongue, or people. After having all things made known unto them according to their desires, their faith, and their prayers of that which has been and which is and which is to come having been visited by the Spirit of God, having conversed with angels, and having been spoken into by the voice of the Lord, and having the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation, also many gifts, the gift of speaking with tongues, the gift of preaching, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the gift of translation. Yea, and after having been delivered of God out of the land of Jerusalem by the hand of the Lord, having been saved from famine and from sickness and all manner of diseases of every kind, and they having waxed strong in battle that they might not be destroyed, having been brought out of bondage time after time, having been kept and preserved until now, that they have prospered until they are rich in all manner of things. And now behold, I say unto you, if this people 
who have received so many blessings from the hand of the Lord, should transgress contrary to the light and knowledge which they do have? I say unto you that if this be the case, if they should fall into transgression, it would be far more tolerable for the Lamanites than for them. Like, do you see that whole list of all the things that the Lord has done for them? He's reminding them of all the ways that they have been so richly blessed for them to turn their back on the Lord after all that. Yeah, I could see how it might be more tolerable for the Lamanites than them, but the Lord still loves them, which is why he's giving them this chance to repent and turn back to him. We see this in 25. And now for this cause that ye might not be destroyed. The Lord has sent his angel to visit many of his people, declaring unto them that they must go forth and cry mightily unto this people, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is nigh at your hand. Interesting to me in 25 that he says, The Lord has sent his angel to visit many of his people, not just Alma. There are many else that were visited that were declaring unto them they must go forth and cry mightily. I don't know. It just seems to me that there was more than Alma maybe that were being like poked and prodded to go to Ammonihah and cry this. So interesting to me about that. And then Alma goes in and starts testifying of Christ, the son of God. And he says in 26, and not many days hence, the son of God shall come in his glory and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace, equity, truth, full of patience, mercy, and long-suffering, quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. And behold, he cometh to redeem those who will be baptized unto repentance through faith in his name. And this is me adding this on there. Even you guys, Ammonihah, huh? he'll even forgive and have mercy on you guys too, right? <laughs> I think that's kind of maybe something Alma was, um, you know, leaving out, but I think that was maybe in his head. I don't know. Okay, now we're going to jump ahead a little bit more into, let's look at Alma 10. And this is where Amulek starts talking. Remember I said before, like, there was an angel that visited, like, many people, like, not just Alma. One of the many people that it definitely visited was also Amulek. And we see Amulek's testimony of what he's gone through. It starts in verse 7. As I was journeying to see a very near kindred, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto me and said, Amulek, return to thine own house, for thou shalt feed a prophet of the Lord, yea, a holy man who is chosen, a chosen man of God, for he has fasted many days because of the sins of this people, and he is a hungered, and thou shalt receive him into thy house and feed him, and he shall bless thee in thy house, and the blessing of the Lord shall rest upon thee and upon thy house." In eight, and it came to pass that I obeyed the voice of the angel and returned towards my house. And as I was going thither, I found the man whom the angel said unto me, Thou shalt receive into thy house. And behold, it was this same man, Alma, who has been speaking unto you concerning the things of God. So I think that that kind of answers my question. Who are these other people the angel is visiting? Well, Amulek was definitely one of them. That's that's what we know. Okay, and in the next couple of verses is where we kind of sing like the dun, 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 like the bad guys come in. And in 13, it says, Nevertheless, there were some among them who had thought to question them, that by their cunning devices they might catch them, in their words that they might find witness against them, that they might deliver them to their judges, that they might be judged according to the law, that they might be slain or cast into prison according to the crime which they could make appear or witness against them. 14. And now it was those men who sought to destroy them who were lawyers, 
who are hired or appointed by the people to administer the law at their times of trials or at the trials of crimes of the people before their judges. Okay, pause there. So I have never seen another profession be so maligned or, you know, pounded upon in the scriptures as these poor lawyers. Like not these poor lawyers in the scriptures, but as like the poor lawyers that I know. Cause I know, I know several lawyers that are very righteous and are very good. Um, in fact, I can think of three that are members of the church just in my area that are righteous and good and make good choices. And one in particular was even a bishop in one of our wards. So just because you're a lawyer does not mean that you are an evil person. What makes you an evil person is this attitude that these people had. They also happened to be lawyers, but this attitude that they had where they were cunning and they were questioning and they were trying to catch through loopholes to find ways to justify their sin. That's what was so bad, not necessarily their profession. And in fact, in verse 20 of Alma, let's see what this is, Alma 11, it talks a little bit more about this attitude that they had. This is 20. It says, now it was for the sole purpose to get gain because they received their wages according to their employ. Therefore, they did stir up the people to riotings and all manner of disturbances and wickedness that they might have more employ that they might get money according to the suits which were brought before them. Therefore, they did stir up the people against Alma and Amulek. Now, when I was in college, you know, I pretty much knew what career I wanted to go on, but I was reading one night in my scriptures, and I read across this verse in particular, and I started thinking, you know, no matter what I do with my life, I want to make sure that I am the opposite of this. These are people who are causing people to sin and to be upset and to have misery in their life so that they can make money off of it. There are lots of different professions that can prey upon these people, not just lawyers, but there's lots of different professions out there that prey upon people like this. And I don't want to be one of them. You know, I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing with my life professionally is the opposite of this, that I am calming people down instead of stirring them up to riot, that I'm giving them peace instead of disturbance, that I'm helping them become righteous instead of wicked, that I'm getting my employee in a way that is good and builds people up, not destructive, like these lawyers did. And Zezrum was one of the lawyers. And we learn in Alma 11 that there's a, con- a confrontation that's going to develop between Zezrum and Amulek. It's going to be interesting to watch the way that Amulek deals with this confrontation with Zeezrom. Um, it reminds me because he starts spouting off doctrine and he starts like bearing his testimony in, in essence to Zeezrom. And Elder Boy K. Packer has said, true doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. The study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than the study of behavior will improve behavior. And that's what Amulek knew. He may not have known those exact words, but he knew that in his heart, the study of the gospel of Christ will change someone. And that's what he's going to do. And even as Yezrim tries to bribe Amulek, and they go into this whole thing about like the money system of the Nephites. And this is another thing where I'm like, Mormon, why did you include this money system? Like, why is it important that we know what everything is worth? But you didn't tell us more about other stuff that I really want to know about. But um, just so you know, people who are much smarter than me have gone through and like calculated how much this bribe was. And it was probably about $50,000 that Zezrum was trying to bribe Amulek to deny his testimony of God. And Amulek wouldn't take it. He wouldn't take the 50000 to deny his testimony. Okay. Oh my gosh. We're running out of time. Okay. There's definitely one more point I want to talk about. 
And it's here in Alma 11. And we'll start in 34. And it says, And Zeezrom said again, Shall he save his people in their sins? And Amulek answered and said unto him, I say unto you, he shall not, for it is impossible for him to deny his word. And Zeezrom said unto the people, See that you remember these things. For he said there is but one God. Yet he saith that the Son of God shall come, but he shall not save his people, as though he had authority to command God. 36. Now Amulek saith again unto him, Behold, thou hast lied. For thou sayest that I spake as though I had authority to command God, because I said he shall not save his people in their sins. 37. And I say unto you that he cannot save them in their sins, for I cannot deny his word. And he hath said that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how can ye be saved except ye inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, ye cannot be saved in your sins. Okay, I wanted to point this out because apparently in an episode, I don't even know what episode it was of the Savior said at some point, I said that Jesus Christ saves us in our sins, which is incorrect. And someone pointed it out to me. And it's interesting, like anytime I get corrected, which nobody likes to be corrected, um, but I go through like a series of emotions. And like the first emotion that always comes to my mind is I'm like, how dare they? I can't believe that they would do that. Blah, 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 blah. You know, I get, I get really angry at first, but then I have to sit back and be like, Lexi, why are you angry? Like, what is the fear that's at the base of this anger? And the fear is always like that. I really don't know what I'm talking about. Like, why should I even have a podcast? Because I don't know what I'm talking about. I made a mistake. I make all kinds of mistakes. I don't know anything. Why am I having this podcast? Why are people listening to me? You know, I go through that whole thing. So there was like all this wrapped up into this phrase of saving them in their sins. When I said this, because I I don't remember what episode I said it in, but I remember like the visual image that I had in my head. Y'all have to remember, like I am not a auditory type person at all. I'm a very visual person. And it's interesting to me that the Lord, like when he instructed me on how, like how to do Come Follow Me, had me do a podcast. I'm pretty sure that he did it because he knew if I did it written word, like if I had a blog or something like that, that it would literally take me like days to put anything out because I would be so meticulous about every single word I used. And I'd go back and check it like 10 million times and I would obsess over it. Whereas with the podcast, I just kind of talk and there's no like super editing and there's no super like way for me to be real nitpicky about what I say. So a lot of times what I'm doing is like, I'll have like a visual image in my head of kind of like what I want to portray. And then I just hope it comes out through my mouth into what you guys hear. And I remember the visual image that when I was talking about this, and again, I can't remember what episode it was that I said this, but the visual image that I had was of Christ reaching down and us being in the ocean, kind of like Peter walking on the water and then him sinking. But the ocean that we're surrounded in is our sin. And then Christ reaching down, lifting us up out of that. So it's correct that Christ saves us from our sins. But in that particular instance, I was at the perspective of being like so mired down in sin and Christ reaching down and pulling us out, which is where, you know, I said the thing about Christ saving us in our sins, like him pulling us out. So even though the idea that I had in my head was correct, the way I phrased it was incorrect. And we learn that here in these particular verses here in chapter 11. And especially in 37, where it says, you cannot be saved in your sins. And 
The Book of Mormon Made Easier by David Ridges says they've got a really good explanation for this, where he says, Many in the world today have fallen into the trap of wanting to be saved in their sins. For instance, many Christian churches have changed the rules so that same-sex marriages can be performed by their ministers, and so that such couples can supposedly have acceptance before God. There has been much pressure put on the leaders of our church to change the rules so that members who deliberately choose to go the way of the world and commit grievous sin can still retain full membership privileges. They want to be saved in their sins rather than from their sins. Satan has many convinced that not only that it should be possible, but that it is possible and it is not. Do you understand the difference now between being saved in your sins and being saved from your sins? In the particular instance that I had in my head, I think the idea was correct, that Christ reaches down and he helps pull us out of our sins. But in the way that Zeezrom was talking, he implied that they could be saved in their sins, that laws of God could be changed so that people could become saved. And it's the opposite. We change to follow the laws of God and Christ and his grace and our Heavenly Father help us do that. They help change our hearts. When we have the will to change our hearts, they help us, and they help change our hearts so that we can be saved from our sins. And I'm really grateful to the person who pointed out that error, because even though at first I was like, like really upset, it turned out to be a good thing, because when this came back up again in the reading this week, I paid so much closer attention to it than I ever had before, and it really gave me a lot to think about, the difference between being saved in sins and being saved from sin, and the importance of that, the importance of knowing that we change from someone who is in sin to someone who is being saved from sin, and that Christ helps pull us out of that and the patterns and the choices that accompany it. So I wanted to point that out. And thank you to, I forget who it was that even wrote me the email about that. But thank you so much for writing that because it helped me really think deeply about this concept, which I think is a really important concept. So just that one little preposition, in and from, just the difference from changing that one little word makes a huge difference in the way that we understand God's laws and the way that we're saved using those laws. So Anyways, guys, we're out of time. Um, I know that I didn't even cover like a portion of what the scriptures were about this week, but I covered all the stuff that I was really thinking about. And so I hope that's okay. I hope you guys are having an awesome week. I hope that you are trusting God and following the ways that he's leading you. And when he tells you to go, that you are going. And I love you guys. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening. 